Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. This week, we revisit our Halloween episode. Even though it was it was floating quietly, but also emitting like a shrieking sound. We'll share mountain myths, legends, and ghost stories, including some that startle. Oh no! And we'll travel to the Bigfoot Museum that draws visitors from around the world to the hills of West Virginia. It's a mystery that has yet to be solved, and I think as human beings, we just love the unknown. And I think it encourages people to get out and into nature and into the woods. You'll hear these stories and more this week inside Appalachia. Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. And I'm Caitlin Tan. Happy Halloween. (laughs) We both (laughs) love Halloween. It's the time of year where it's not just acceptable, but encouraged to tell spooky stories. So that's what we did. We asked for your stories and you all delivered. We don't have time to get to all of them today, but we do have a show packed with ghost stories and mysteries from across the region. So let's get to it. Everyone has that building in their town that you just know is haunted. Dan Cady is a playwright, and he knows a building just like that in Charleston, West Virginia. I don't like to tell about the supernatural experiences that happened in the town where I live, because eventually strangers start showing up with apps on their cell phones trying to prove me a liar. Still, there is this one warehouse. Back when I was trying to make a legitimate living, I owned a small printing business for which I rented the second floor of an ancient warehouse in a not-so-fashionable part of town. Twenty feet from the back door was the railroad track, and at certain times of the day and night, the iron beasts rumbled by, shaking the floors and the shelves and deafening all who were inside the building. Okay, now, this was a spooky place to begin with. Ancient brick walls, worn, unfinished plank flooring. Huge beams stretching across the ceiling. This wasn't one of those places that anyone would ever rebuild into fashionable lofts for the rich and famous. This was just a dusty 100-year-old warehouse. But it was big. 200 feet long and 50 feet wide big. And like old buildings are wont to do, especially old buildings by the tracks, it made noises of its own. So we all get spooked now and then anyway, whether it's at home during a thunderstorm or closing up the shop at the mall or an old building in the dark part of town. It's part of a long lost survival instinct we inherited from some hairy ancestor from the plains of Ethiopia on his way to discovering fire. Only it wasn't the warehouse itself that spooked us. It was what was in the warehouse and I have no doubt still is. Now, I never made money in that printing business, but it took five years and a major fire to convince me that I never would. At the height of my incompetence, I had half a dozen employees, mostly college kids working the presses or artwork or prep, all in various stations throughout the space. It started off as a joke, really. He was the guy who always was looking over your shoulder or just left the room right before you looked up. The guy who we'd blame when we couldn't find the box that was right there a minute ago. Or who moved the chairs around in the middle of the night so when we came in the next morning we'd fall over them. Yeah, that guy. The other guy. Hector. For no particular reason we called him Hector. For a while nobody really saw Hector. Hector was one of those spirits whose presence everybody felt, but no one could exactly figure out how. He was just there, and at times at least fairly harmless, and at other times a real pain in the butt. After a few years of losing money, the business started heading south, and most of my employees moved on, leaving one last college kid due to leave for school the next week, and I to do all of the rest of the work, such as it was. It was the last of summer, on that one early September night every year when the first cold front of autumn blows in. The first dry leaves of the poplar trees scatter across the parking lot and everything changes. It was dark. The old windows were rattling and we were rushing to finish an order and get home. 
Hector had been busy all that day, especially upstairs on the vacant third floor where he seemed to pace from one end of the building to the other. Oh, yeah. First time anyone ever heard Hector pace, they ran out of the building. Really, I know I did. I didn't come back until I had someone else with me for protection. Long steps. Sometimes slow, sometimes stomping, sometimes running. Come on, a hundred-year-old building and disembodied footsteps marching above your head? You'd run, too. So Hector had been busy all day moving around, watching us. He seemed different that day, though. I don't know why. Maybe angry or sad. Thinking about it now, he may have had a thing for my assistant. She was leaving. Maybe that's what was making him so sad. Whatever it was, he seemed more haunting than usual. Outside, the wind had just picked up, and the branches of the trees that had grown up beside the building were beginning to scrape along the windows. It was late, dark. We really wanted to go home. My assistant was sitting at her work table, facing the door to the office and the rest of the warehouse when he suddenly appeared. And I mean, really appeared. Know that saying, you look like you've seen a ghost? <laughs> well, yeah. I had my back to her when she cried out, and I turned. And there he was, standing in the open doorway, not five feet away, looking at her and then at me, back and forth, back and forth. Outside, the wind blew harder, and the sound of the cold rain pelting against the windows was all I heard as we stood, all three of us motionless, staring at each other, waiting. He wasn't a tall man, maybe 5'9 or 5'10, and thin but muscular somehow. He wore his hair short and had on a dark jacket and deep brown pants that seemed dusty around his knees as if he'd been recently kneeling on the floor. His shoes were old and cracked and well-worn. He looked at us from deep-set eyes, his face dominated by a hawkish nose and colored by the dark shadows of a day or two's growth of beard. He seemed in his late thirties, maybe younger. He was sad. Dark, dark circles beneath his eyes, and he was tired, with a weariness that all three of us seemed to understand. Do you see him? I whispered. My assistant only nodded as we fell again into silence. Now what do we do? A few long moments later, he put his hands in his pockets and turned his head slightly as if he too were puzzled by what he saw. Was I really seeing this, both of us? Were we really seeing the same thing, the ghost of a man standing in the doorway three feet away? What do we do now? What do we do? Finally, slowly, very slowly, I took a few steps to the doorway and, reaching up with one hand, outlined the figure standing there. There was a coolness around him now, like the coolness of a breeze on my wet hands after washing the car. Is this what you see? I whispered. She nodded, still unspeaking. It was only then that I realized that the figure I had outlined, the man who was still looking at me, was only partially solid, although against the black background of the darkened office and warehouse, he'd appeared complete. The coolness around him that I'd first felt when I'd run my hand around his perimeter seemed to be growing outward as he glanced back at me, directly into my eyes. I took a step backward. I feel I should say something, I whispered to my assistant, but as I turned to speak, a gust of wind against the window suddenly shattered the silence. He looked at us one last time, curiously, but still with that overwhelming sadness, and, and backed away into the dark, and then turned and silently disappeared into the shadows of the warehouse. Neither one of us spoke as we left that night, getting into our separate cars and driving away. What was left to say, you know? For months afterward, he was quiet, even though I'd speak to him from time to time in the cold winter months when I was working there alone. Oh, the train still roared by, and the building still made sounds, of course, but 
After our encounter that night, they just didn't seem as spooky anymore. Then, one night the following spring, the place caught fire, and with it, my print shop. As my wife and I stood outside the place in the middle of the night, watching the firefighters try to quell the flames that by then were leaping high above the building, I saw him one last time staring at me from the second-story window. The same sad loneliness in his eyes. The building still stands. The damage from the fire was fixed years ago, but as far as I know, there's never been another tenant. Oh, I do drive by every now and then, slow down, glance up, the off chance that he might be looking back at me, but he never has. This time of year especially, I still think of him, up there in that old warehouse, staring out that window, all alone. Thanks to West Virginia Public Broadcasting's Jim Lang for recording Dan Katie telling us that story. When we come back, we'll hear the legend of the Flatwoods Monster. You know, this woman like shining a flashlight in this creature's eyes. Next thing he knows, he's getting blinded and he freaks out and starts vibrating and just like basically throws up some sort of weird oil on him. So I think I think they I think they startled him. You're inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. And I'm Caitlin Tan. We'll be right back. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia, with career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu. Welcome back Inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. And I'm Caitlin Tan. Okay, so Central West Virginia has a new monster museum, paying tribute to Bigfoot. The Sutton Museum is small and located in the back of a store that sells knickknacks and handmade items by local artisans. The museum was created to document local sightings of what people described as these big, hairy, primate-looking animals. Our producer Roxy Todd went to check it out. And what she heard from the museum's creator were stories of a creature unique to West Virginia. Hello. Hey. Thanks. I'm Roxy. Good to meet you. Hello. I'm Laurel. It's a quiet Sunday afternoon when I arrive. Laurel Petalico is wearing a soft cream-colored sweater as she leads me through aisles of kids' puzzles and wooden hand-carved toys into the back room, the new museum. The first thing that catches my eye is a six-foot-tall carved wooden sculpture of what looks to me to be a bearded man with long hair. It turns out this sculpture is what kicked off the idea for the museum. A local artist had brought it in to sell in Petalico's store. And when he first showed it to her, she said to him, hey, it's Bigfoot. And he said, no, it's the old man of the mountain. We don't have Bigfoot in this area. And I said, well, it looks like Bigfoot. And he said, no, he said, those are out west and they're mean. We have the old man of the mountain and there's a lot of them in this area, but they're not mean. And um, so I showed him a picture of Bigfoot and he said, yeah, that's the old man of the mountain. <laughs> Laurel and her husband put this wooden statue in the window of their store and people started dropping by, telling more stories about these old men of the mountain. 
I've had people tell me that they have them living on their land like they have for generations. Um, one guy, he said he has eight of them and they've been on his land since he knows of, since he was 16 and he's in his 60s. There are a lot of sightings reported in West Virginia and Padalico's museum even has some casts of footprints that are supposedly made by Bigfoot. These are collected by Bigfoot hunters, basically amateur trackers. Petalico says even though she's never seen a Bigfoot, she's a believer. Are there theories that they're just people that happen to, you know, take up residence in the woods and go wild? I don't think so. Even the locals, they call it the old man of the mountain, but they don't believe that it is a man. They think it's an animal like a bear. They keep saying that. They said it's not a bear. And but it's something different and it walks on two legs and it acts manlike, but not manlike enough. A lot of the sightings she's heard of are around Sutton Lake. Some people even told Petalico they saw a big creatures swimming in the lake. One even supposedly swam under a canoe while a family was out fishing. Supposedly, these West Virginia creatures have never hurt anyone. The worst story she's heard is they threw rocks but didn't hit anyone. She says she thinks they're pretty tame and have just kind of figured out how to live side by side with people in a pretty remote part of Appalachia. Petalico and her husband celebrated the launch of the museum back in June with a Bigfoot festival in downtown Sutton. The local library got involved. Kids came and did crafts. They've had a steady stream of people stop by the museum since then. And Petalico says she's even had a few tourists from Europe. I asked her why she thinks they're drawn here. Well, it's interesting because I think everyone relates to Bigfoot a little bit because it's a mystery that has yet to be solved. And I think as human beings, we just love the unknown. Um, but also it draws from all walks of society because I think, you know, real men's men can be into Bigfoot and, you know, be looking for it. And and I think it encourages people to get out and into nature and into the woods and, um, I think there's also like a sense of freedom about Bigfoot, just the thought that something could be, still be surviving, even in North America, where there's so much, you know, commercialization built up, I think just really excites the imagination. And Petalico says the way she sees it, a little extra tourism for this small town can't hurt. They come, buy some local crafts, maybe stay in a hotel and do some fishing. I asked her if she's heard any pushback from local people who aren't totally sold that Sutton should become a destination for Bigfoot hunters. She said everyone she's talked with has been positive. As I left the museum, I wondered, what if this whole Bigfoot thing takes off? What would that do for the reputation of Sutton? What does it actually mean for a town's identity to become recognized for its Bigfoot sightings? For now, Petalico says the museum is planning a series of events, including a bigger festival next summer when they celebrate their one-year anniversary. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Roxy Todd in Sutton, West Virginia. As if one monster museum weren't enough for a small town, Sutton is home to two. The Flatwoods Monster Museum is just about a block away. And like the Bigfoot Museum, it's dedicated to a cryptid that's become part of modern pop culture. The story of the Flatwoods monster began September 12, 1952, in the small town of Flatwoods. It was 7 o'clock at night, and some schoolboys were playing football. They saw some kind of object falling from the sky that looked to be on fire, says Andrew Smith. He's somewhat of an expert when it comes to the Flatwoods legend. Something, uh, something bright, maybe a fireball, appeared to fly overhead and land on a nearby hilltop. Andrew's the executive director of the Braxton County Visitor Center, as well as the founder of the Flatwoods Monster Museum, which opened two years ago. So, as the original story goes, the boys and two adults hiked up the hill to check out this fireball. There was an overwhelming rotten egg smell in the air that burned their eyes. They see movement from their left coming from the woods, and as they shine their light at it, they saw a 10-foot-tall monster hovering above the ground, spewing smoke and gas at them. Its head was red and spade-shaped with a distinct point at the top. It had glowing eyes with spindly arms and claws. Its body was covered in some kind of green armor. Even though it was, it was floating quietly, but also emitting like a shrieking sound. Everyone ran home and reported it to the police. 
Other than a lingering smell, there wasn't much evidence left behind. So that's the basic story of the Flatwoods monster. It was 67 years ago, but people are still talking about it. And over the years, the telling of the story has varied. Some people think there was a government conspiracy involved. Other versions mention a dog that died from the gas that poured out of the monster. There's just something about this story that lets the imagination run wild. And of course, the actual look of the monster is constantly changing. So the Flatwoods Monster Museum has become an epicenter of all the different interpretations of the monster. It's in an old pharmacy building in the small downtown of Sutton, West Virginia. The storefront windows advertise the museum in different languages for that international appeal. Originally, it was supposed to be the Braxton County Visitor Center, but what started as one small shelf of Flatwoods Monster paraphernalia turned into an entire museum. I would say easily over 95% of our traffic is because we're a Flatwoods Monster Museum, not because we're a visitor center. The museum is one large room. At the entrance, people are greeted by a life-sized Flatwoods Monster costume. The walls are lined with tall shelves displaying many reinterpretations of the monster, like drawings, figurines, lanterns, stickers, t-shirts, and video games. Some look cute and inviting, while others have evil eyes and bulging muscles. At the back of the room is another life-sized Flatwoods monster made out of a green graduation gown, PVC pipe, and a red circular pizza pan. Another one sits on top of a shelf. It's just the head of the monster, but it's much larger than a human head. Its menacing eyes peer down at guests. It has a bony, dark red face, hollowed out cheekbones, and a grim reaper-like cloak. I have no idea where that came from. Andrew says a lot of the collection has been donated by artists and collectors. And the museum has also become a hub for all things spooky in West Virginia. It's a place for people to swap not just Flatwoods monster knowledge, but ghost stories and UFO sightings. Colby White, a Morgantown-based musician, has some merchandise from his band on display. Captain Catfish is a punk band with an Appalachian folk music flair. A lot of their tunes are based on regional folklore, such as Bigfoot, the Yeti, and of course, the Flatwoods Monster. No phantom of Flatwoods from Moon or from Mars. Maybe from God, not from the stars. The song is called The Phantom of Flatwoods. It's a traditional West Virginia folk song written at the time of the sighting by a local named Don Lamb. However, Colby arranged the music to it. And he actually has a tattoo of the monster. Most people interpret the tale as scary or evil, but he sees it differently. He thinks the Flatwoods monster was just taking in its surroundings when a group of kids and their mom approached from behind. Here comes, like, you know, a bunch of kids and, like, you know, this woman, like, shining a flashlight in this dude's eyes or creature's eyes. Next thing he knows, he's getting blinded and he freaks out and starts vibrating and just, like, basically throws up some sort of weird oil on him. So I think, I think, they, I think they startled him. That's my theory. I think they startled the Flatwoods monster. The monster, surprisingly, has a Japanese following that Andrew thinks began in the 60s or 80s. It's featured in some older Japanese video games and also made into figurines. They have an anime cartoon look with bright colors and a large toothy mouth. Andrew has used the Flatwoods monster as a way to try to boost tourism in the area. He even runs online ads in Japanese, which proved to be fruitful. Andrew says a Japanese woman visited the museum last year after seeing the ad. She had seen this drawing her whole life, but she had no idea it was based in America. She had no idea it was based in West Virginia. But learning that it was, she just did this deep dive into West Virginia. There are also different names associated with the monster, like the Phantom of Flatwoods, Braxton County Monster, and the Flatwoods Green Monster. Andrew says in a board game, it's referred to as Braxy with two X's. Braxy has been a word for maybe three years. And how often I hear people using it is pretty amazing. And and they, they use it as if it's old. There are even handmade wooden chairs painted to look like the monster. All five were built by a local carpenter and are placed throughout Braxton County. They are 10 feet tall with built-in stairs to reach the seat, 
they look more like a throne. Recently, Andrew also launched a social media campaign using the chairs. You're actually preserving the history and the memory of the Flatwoods monster. So you're taking these pictures and putting them on the internet. Andrew says he believes the group saw something that September night in 1952. Whether it was the Flatwoods monster, he says he'll leave it up to the imagination. And Colby, the musician, says a part of him would love to spot the monster in the wild. But he also kind of likes the mystery of it all. The unknown. It gives him something to believe in. Please tell us why you fly over our trees. The end of the world or an omen of peace. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Caitlin Tan in Braxton County, West Virginia. Sight of the phantom was a sight to behold. The green eyes and red face of the story was told. We floated in air with fingers of flame. Fall is a season of spooky sounds and hayrides and pumpkin festivals. It's a time for bats and owls and black cats. So next, we'll hear what happens when you send a self-proclaimed scaredy cat to a Halloween-themed wildlife tour. Reporter Brittany Patterson brought us this story. It's the Friday before Halloween, and the parking lot of the West Virginia State Wildlife Center is packed. Hundreds of children and their families have come to the state-run zoological center, which houses wildlife, native and introduced to West Virginia, for the ninth annual Spooky Night Tours. I'm here because I love Halloween. Costumes, witches, candy, I love it all. But I hate, and I mean really hate, being scared. And that makes the Spooky Night Tours a good choice for me. We're just spooky. We're not... Um, we don't do anything really bloody or gory or anything like that. Judy Channel is the secretary for the State Wildlife Center and organizer of the event. We are honored to, to provide a family-friendly Halloween event. The idea was developed by a former wildlife biologist. The initial premise was the animals are nocturnal and they're actually kind of more um, active. And so it was just going to be interesting to just to walk through the woods with a mountain lion and wolves and black bears and and everything. And we just built on it every year. For the cost of admission, $4 for adults and $2 for kids, visitors can partake in all of the Spooky Night Tours events. That includes taking a hayride through the Wildlife Center. A tractor pulls an open-air trailer with straw bales in the back. It provides a prime view of both the center's creatures and spooky decorations. To our right, a mannequin of a park ranger stuck in a manhole. Make-believe objects merge with the real-life animal residents who live here at the Wildlife Center. Up ahead, three black bears amble into view. Visitors to the center's spooky night tours can also enter a maze, if they dare. I asked one excited patron, nine-year-old Jaden Straley-Smith, what to expect. Should I be scared? No! No, not too scary? No, not scary at all! Outside, a cobweb-covered headstone warns visitors, enter at your own risk. All right, here we go into the maze. Inside the tarp-covered maze, spooky skeletons hang from the walls, and orange fairy lights cast a ghoulish glow. The kids seem to love it. As promised, not too scary. Adrian Tucker and her family live about 20 minutes away. They love that the spooky night tour isn't horror-focused. It's just good, simple fun. Not too scary. The highlight of the center's Halloween-themed festivities really begins when the sun goes down. This is nine-year-old Brazen Rhodes' third year attending the Spooky Night Tours. This year, he's come prepared. So tell me about these tools that you have. Flashlights. I'm going to shine them in the witch's eyes if they try to jump out at me. <laughs> As night falls, excitement mounts. And we're off to see the animals in the dark. The trail has been decorated with different spooky motifs, mostly funny, including a graveyard and a giant dancing spider. One volunteer actor is dressed as a fortune teller. You will be very tired when you get to the end of the trail. But the highlight are the animals. Oh God, there's animals up here! Yes! 
The kids are especially impressed by three mountain lions, one of which is standing right up against the chain link fence. Those are huge! The kids stalk past the huge cats, waving their glow sticks and flashlights. Next, we come to a stage scene, which is supposed to be Area 51. A crashed UFO is shrouded in green, glowing light. To keep the scare factor low, the actors are kids. 11-year-old Gavin Marsh is dressed head-to-toe in white plastic. He's playing a hazmat worker on cleanup duty. One of his brothers is dressed in a suit. He's playing a government worker. Another brother is dressed as an invisible alien. Even though he's really in plain sight, we're supposed to imagine the government workers can't see him. How's it going out here? Yeah. Great. Great. Yeah. Just a little bit hard. A little bit hard. We're act like we don't see him. We're just staring at little strings tied to a tree. In the darkness and the glowing shadows, their sense of imagination is a little contagious. As we walk on, I feel the spooky settling into my bones. And while none of the actors jump out or grab people, that doesn't mean that some of them aren't a little creepy. No! During one particularly dark stretch of trail, one actor, face painted white like an evil clown, clicks on his flashlight and says, boo. Oh God, you're so scary. (laughs) At the end of the tour, I meet up with Brazen Rhodes and his family. Turns out Brazen also fell victim to the scary clown guy. Was there anything that was scary? Tell the truth, because it was. There was a few parts. that one guy that jumped out. Yeah. But besides that, did you have fun? Yeah. Yeah. Trip organizer Crystal Bevins was impressed. Very exciting. Very good. Very, very nice decorations. Yes. We had a good time as always, as always. It's very worth a trip to come to it, if you've never been. As for me, well, I survived. And I had a good time. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Brittany Patterson at the West Virginia State Wildlife Center. Brittany Patterson originally reported that story back in 2019. She's since moved to Vermont, but is still reportedly scared of things that go boo in the night. The West Virginia Wildlife Center has stopped its spooky nights tours for now, but they're still open during the day, so you can visit the wolves and panthers and otters without getting too scared. Next, a story from southern West Virginia. It's about the Witch of Wildwood. It takes place in a small coal camp town outside of Beckley. In the early 20th century, a person named Casimir Kiskis moved to town. Casimir didn't fit in with the locals, speaking in tongues, making almost guttural sounds. And Casimir cooked food that smelled unlike anything the locals had ever experienced. Casimir was different. Well, one day the locals accused Casimir of practicing witchcraft, potentially even casting a spell on local children. And so, the night before Halloween, Casimir was burned at the stake. And buried in Wildwood Cemetery. The tombstone had an upside-down cross, and it was faced away from all the good people in the cemetery. There's even a local punk song written about the legend, called The Tragic Tale of Casimir Kiskis. actual story is not at all like the legend. Here's Beckley historian Scott Worley, who researched the real Casimir Kiskis. Actually, Casimir was a man, not a woman, who immigrated from Lithuania about 1907. Casimir was of Russian descent and practiced the Eastern Orthodox religion. So you see, when Casimir would read the Bible or talk to people, well, with a very thick accent and and actually speaking in his native tongue, well, it sounded like it was gibberish or maybe a spell was being cast out off the pages. We do know that Casimir was a coal miner and was actually killed in a house fire. And he languished for five days before he finally died 
on the evening before All Hallows' Eve, October 30th of 1924. The gravestone for Casimir Kiskis still stands in the Wildwood Cemetery in Beckley, West Virginia. Historian Scott Worley leads a tour there and along other sites in Beckley, which have ghost legends told about them. Now, we all know you can't have Halloween without skeletons. So next, we're going to hear a story about a skeleton. And its name is Mr. Death. Lynn Ford told this story several years ago at the Timpanogos Storytelling Institute in Utah. In my family, because of its diversity and the many voices that share stories, we tend to have a unique spin on just about anything, including life and death. Once there was an old woman who was sweeping the floor in her house. And as she swept, she sang a song to help her to pass the time, make the work go more easily and more quickly. Move your hands a bit. It'll help keep you awake for the next teller. (laughs) Sweep that floor and help that old woman sing her song. She sang, nee, 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 nee
He went into the other room and helped her to spread the tablecloths, bring in the platters, set down napkins, knives, forks, and spoons, plates, bowls, and glasses. And when the tables were set and the food was all done, death held out his hand and said, Old woman, it is time for you to go. Not yet. I got to get into my party dress because company will be here soon and I need for somebody to stand at the door and greet folks as they come in. (laughs) So you stand at the door and if anybody knocks, you open up the door, you greet them, you welcome them, you tell them, come on in. Old woman, I do not do what I tell you to do. Death walked to the door. And the old woman went into her bedroom and closed the door. Death stood at the door until he heard someone knock. And then death slowly opened the door. There stood a young woman and a young man. And they looked up at the one standing at the door. Death said, greetings. Welcome. Do come in. The young woman asked the young man, Do you think we should go in? The young man said, Yes, it's grandma's house. And I think he's smiling. (laughs) Smiling. But death stood aside and welcomed them in, and they both walked into the house. Then death closed the door, and each time there was a at the door, death opened the door and greeted others, welcomed them, told them to come in. And soon the house was filled with people, and a band had set up in one corner of that big room, and the music had begun to play. People were carrying on conversations, laughing, talking. Some of them were singing to the sounds of the band. A few of them were already eating. When grandmother opened up her bedroom door, there she stood in her party dress and her dancing shoes polished and shiny and as she walked in and talked with others and laughed and ate and danced death stood in one corner because he didn't know what else to do and while he stood there a little boy walked over to him with a plate of food and the little boy looked at him and said Mr. Bony Man you too skinny here Eat this. Death said, child, go away. I have no need for food. Eat this. Go away, child. I don't need food. Eat this. Eat it. Eat it. Eat it. Eat it. Well, grandmother walked over to death and said, look what you just did. You made one of my great-grandbabies cry. Shame on you. If this boy wants you to eat something, you better open your mouth and eat it. (laughs) So death opened his bony jaw. And the little boy stood on tippy toes and shoved the food into death's mouth. It bounced down his neck bones, through his rib cage, dropped through his pelvic bones, bounced off his knees, and fell to the floor. (laughs) And the little boy looked at the food on the floor. He went and got another plate of food. (laughs) Here, Mr. Bony Man, eat this. And he shoved the food into death's mouth. And once again, it bounced down his neck bones, through his rib cage, dropped through his pelvic bones, bounced off his knees and landed on the floor. And other children saw this. They began to fill small plates with food, run over to death and shove food into death's mouth. And after a while, there was a pile of food on the floor. And that first little boy walked over to death and said, Mr. Bony Man... 
here's some juice. Drink it. Well, Death took the glass and poured it down his bones, and it stuck to the neck bones and the rib cage bones and the pelvic bones, but it became a puddle with the food on the floor. And more juice was brought by more of the children, and they were giggling and laughing as death became very, very sticky, and his feet began to stick to the food and the juice on the floor. Well, that noise made the children laugh, and death tried to get his feet to move away from that messy puddle. And when he did, his knee bones knocked together. Well, this began to make a rhythm, and the children started to dance. They were having a good time. And when the band heard the rhythm and saw the children dancing, they picked up the rhythm, and they played to the rhythm of death's bony kneecaps and sticky feet. And everyone began to dance with death. Everyone was having a wonderful time. And that old woman walked toward death, held out her arms, and began to dance around with death. And after a while, the party was over. The band left. Everyone left. And there were only two standing in that house. The old woman and death. The old woman said, I want to thank you for letting me have my birthday party. This was my 99th birthday. Since it's over... I guess it's time for me to go. And she held her hand out to death. And death said, no, old woman, this was too much fun. (laughs) We have to do this again. I'll see you next year. (laughs) And death returned for the old woman's hundredth birthday. And the next birthday. And the next birthday. And the next birthday. Until the old woman felt tired. And felt that it was time to go. Death held out his hand, and the old woman took it, and she was not afraid. Nor were her children, or her children's children, or her children's children's children, or anyone in that small community in the hills, for they had all danced with death. That's Lynn Ford telling her story, The Old Woman and Death, in front of a live audience at Utah's Tempanogos Storytelling Institute back in 2016. Ford lives in Columbus, Ohio, but she grew up in Appalachian, Pennsylvania, and spent childhood summers in East Liverpool, Ohio. She says many of the stories she tells, including The Old Woman and Death, are adapted from folktales she heard as a child. Folktales also influenced Marie Manila, a fiction writer in West Virginia. Her novels draw from those tales, along with the tradition of Appalachian storytelling. My father was born in Huntington to Italian immigrants, and my grandmother died before I was born, and my grandfather shortly thereafter. Thus, I was not raised with oral Appalachian folktales passed down from one generation to the next. However, I was alive when the Silver Bridge connecting West Virginia to Ohio collapsed in 1967. And I remember the rumors about a strange creature seen flying around the suspension bridge before its collapse. Mothman, that urban legend who may have caused the bridge to go down. I also remember ghost stories that my friends and I would tell at sleepovers to scare the bejeebers out of each other, Uh, especially the one about the young man who picked up a hitchhiking girl who was shivering in the cold, and he let her borrow his jacket and forgot to get it back when he dropped her off. Well, come to find out, 
She'd been killed in a car wreck years before on that very spot in the road where he picked her up. So when he goes back there the next day to see if he had imagined the whole thing, he finds his jacket neatly folded up on the ground. And uh, in grade school, my friends and I used to hold seances in my dark basement. Um, I don't know who we were conjuring, but my sister would hide in the furnished room and make spooky noises. Or I'd secretly toss M&Ms at the window, uh, which was always good for a few screams. And then lastly, I also lived within walking distance of a cemetery. And every Halloween, teens would gather there to drink cheap Boone's Farm wine and pour ketchup all over the tombstones. Only the bravest would dare go there at night to see those bleeding tombstones. I was never that brave. In a future episode, we'll hear the full interview with Marie Manila about her fiction writing, folk tales, and more. That story's coming up soon on Inside Appalachia. And eventually, y'all, we do want to get to the stories you suggested for this episode. I heard ideas about the Coal Mountain Lights, at least one haunted house, and even a ghost horse. Yeah, I mean, I heard a true crime story also about the Moonville Tunnel in Ohio and the Point Pleasant Mothman prophecies. I feel like there's just such a wealth of Halloween stories in Appalachia. We hope you enjoyed a few lighter stories this week. And I hope you all have a safe and fun Halloween. Till next time, thanks for joining us as we journey throughout Appalachia. Our theme music is by Matt Jackford. Other music this week was provided by Colby White, Nora Keys, Slate Dump, Tosca, and The Soaked Lamb. Roxy Todd, Jade Arthur Holtz, and Andrea Billups were our producers for this episode. Bill Lynch is our current producer. Kelly Libby is our editor. Our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens. Xander Alloy also helped produce this episode. Find us on Instagram and Twitter, at InAppalachia. You can also send us an email to InsideAppalachia at WVPublic.org. Visit wvpublic.org slash insideappalachia to subscribe or stream all of our stories. Or look for Inside Appalachia on your favorite podcast app. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia. With career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu.